morning, everybody. It's Jeff Goldberg. I'm broadcasting to you uh, on July 10th. It's 10 a.m. here on the east coast of uh, Long Island. Oh, it's not the east coast of Long Island. It's the south coast of Long Island on the east coast of the United States. And we're doing another Facebook Live for the Sales Pro Network. I am a sales trainer, coach, outsource sales manager, consultant, sales, whatever you want. And I'm the founder of the Sales Pro Network. And I think our guest today will be interested to know that I founded the Sales Pro Network to elevate the profession of sales. And I'm sure he's gonna talk about that later because of something he posted on LinkedIn yesterday, which is fascinating. Uh, the Sales Pro Network was designed to help anybody who sells, whether you sell for a living or selling is just part of what you do, as a place where you can come and answer questions, ask questions and get advice from experts like our guest today, uh, to share your challenges, your successes, and really just to have a place that we can all hang out and grow together. And of course, do Facebook Lives like this one with fantastic guests like the one I'm going to introduce to you right now, my friend, I'm <laughs> Todd Capone. Good morning, Todd. Oh, thanks for having me, brother. It's good to see you. Very good to see you. I know Todd over, I think, 18 or almost 20 years when we both were associated with the same organization that taught sales training. Uh, in that organization, it was run by a guy who decided to eventually franchise. And I think he sold about 45 or 47 franchises in a year. And, uh, while I liked everybody who was there out of the 45 or 47 people who invested, there were very few who could actually uh, stand up in front of an audience and deliver sales training in a way that was going to make an impact on the people that were listening to him. But Todd Capone was certainly one of them. However, and I've said this uh, over and over, I had no idea back then just how smart he was. So Todd, I really am very excited to be speaking with you today. And I know that you're gonna add a lot of value to the members of the Sales Pro Network. Well, thank you so much. I think, you know, back then I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think my nerdery around uh, neuroscience, behavioral science and research has just kind of taken all of this stuff to a different level. So uh, yeah, don't feel bad. And I'm not that smart. It's just like my, my passion for what I'm talking about now is led to kind of a whole new world here. So Yep. So Saad, uh, Todd uh, describes himself as a sales nerd. And good morning to John Harnett and Leo, uh, Neil Miller, Cindy Martinfeld, and Jason Kaminsky. Happy Friday to you, too. Um, Todd, I want to jump right in if I could. But before we, I'm going to ask you, of course, about the book and what brought you to writing up. But before we do that, could you just give us a couple of minutes on what brought you up to that point just before writing the book? Yeah, I mean, it all started by meeting Jeff Goldberg back in 2003. So that was uh, that was the beginning. You know, I, in all honesty, I was what I would call a B, B minus sales rep forever, right? Like I had a couple of incredible years. I was at SAP in the late nineties when it was like working at the drive-through window, you know, where uh, I did 827% of my number in 1999 on a capped comp plan though, of course, because uh, that's what they did. But I thought that I was the greatest salesperson of all time. And then 2000 just smacked you in the face, right? But it was then that I really sat back and said, all right, enough chasing money. I need to chase my passion. And my passion was for making the sales world a better place. And it always was. And so, you know, I bounced around a little bit, but I'm uh, now a seven-time sales leader, having done that with four different companies. Um, we, with, I, I was on the sales leadership team of a company called Exact Target, uh, where we grew the company, IPO'd, and then sold it for a little under $3 billion back in 2013. So that was a nice one. And then uh, my most recent gig before writing the book was chief revenue officer of a Chicago-based technology company where we uh, built it from the ground up and turned it into what Deloitte called uh, Chicago's fastest growing tech company from 2014 to 2017. 
And then we're going to get into it, but a research study changed my life. And I quit my job and wrote a book. My wife was looking at me very sideways at the time, but it has been a blast and it seems to be making a real impact. So uh, I'm hoping that you got a piece of that $3 billion. And I do now want to get into uh, what I consider, and anybody who's been following me on LinkedIn, Facebook, here on the Sales Pro Network knows how strongly I feel about this book and how much I love it. Uh, the Transparency Sale, I believe, was the number one best-selling sales book of 2019. Tell, me, uh, tell us all, uh, what got you to write this book? So yeah, here's what happened. So the company I was with was a company called Power Reviews. And you could probably guess from the name that they're in the review space, right? We helped retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on a website. So you know, you're buying a pair of Crocs you know, on crocs.com and you look at the product and then you scroll down, there's the reviews. It was our company that was helping them with the collect and display. And we did that with a thousand different companies, most of which you probably have heard of. But here's what happened. Um, we partnered with Northwestern University here in Chicago to look at consumer behavior around what happens when a consumer is coming to a website and a website is acting as the salesperson, right? Like a Crocs or a Vineyard Vines or a Jet or one of those companies. What they found is the first thing, we all look at reviews now. So I'm guessing for everybody listening, you probably read reviews before you buy something you hadn't bought before that's of at least medium to high consideration. So, okay, no surprise there. But the two things that rocked my world. Number one was that 82% of us go right to the negative reviews first. So we skip the perfect fives and go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones. So I'm assuming if you think about the last time you were going to buy something, you're not just sitting there going, oh, another five. Like you wanted to get to the negatives. And then the second piece that rocked my world was that when a product has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5, those products sell at a higher conversion rate than any other average review score, including a five, meaning a four, two sells better than a five. So I'm looking at that thinking, all right, that's when a website's acting as the salesperson, that when left to their own devices, a consumer seeks out the negative and when they don't get it, they don't buy. Uh, they need that balance. So I did two things. I dove into the behavioral science around it to see, all right, does this apply in other ways? And then, I started applying it and uh, you know, I, I was in a deal where I thought I was having coffee with an executive of a big apparel brand in New York. And it turned out I walked in and he, ex he had his whole team there and they were expecting a presentation. And I was thinking to myself, um, I'm gonna try it. And if it doesn't work, there's no evidence because I'm here all by myself. And uh, so I led with what I, I basically sold on behalf of the, the competitor on something they had that we didn't have and said, if this is going to be important, can we address that now before we all invest a bunch of time here? And the deal closed in 10 days in what normally would have taken six months. And I was like, wait a second. We are all wired towards the negative first. Like that's the way we are wired is to try to predict what our experience is going to be like. That's why we do it on a website. And when we do it in human to human or B2B sales, give the buyer that, hey, here's what you might not like and lead with it. Amazing magic happens. And so I was like, I've got to get these ideas out into the world. And next thing you know, there's a book and uh, my life has changed. And now I'm just out speaking and teaching about it every day. So wait, wait a minute. So the typical salesperson 
will go in and say, here's why our stuff is the greatest and why you should buy it. And what you're say seeming to say is completely counterintuitive. It sounds like you're saying we should actually go in and say, well, we've got a lot of great stuff, but we've also got some warts. Is that correct? Essentially, yeah. It's basically our role as a sales professional is to what I call, you know, be the buying Sherpa. Um, but it's like, help the buyer make the best decision for them. And if you're going to lose, lose fast so that you can spend time on the deals that you should be winning. And so that's those two things in conjunction with the fact that when we do that and we humanize the beginning of the sales process, you know, every interaction you have with a potential buyer, you're either building trust or eroding trust. It's not staying the same. And if you start in the hole, it's hard to dig out. It's a lot harder to dig out. Uh, versus starting up high and then having a couple of dings against you as you go through the process. So when you lead with that transparency, the foundation of your relationship, that first minute, first five minutes is built on trust. And so the answer to your question is yes. But the second piece that we all need to recognize is due to the proliferation of reviews and feedback on everything we do, buy and experience, you got to do it anyway. Like we can no longer pretend that our products are perfect and get away with the imperfections. Like, so be the buying Sherpa, become the asset to the buyer versus the necessary evil. And you're gonna see sales cycles speed up, win rates go up, qualified deals in faster, qualified deals out faster that you're gonna lose anyway. And you make it really, really hard on your competitors. Um, and, and that's, there's a, a lot of funny stories there too. Awesome. So something you said in there, I mean, I love all of what you said, but something in particular rings true for me, and that's lose fast. If you're going to lose, lose fast, because my experience is that highly professional salespeople are blind to when people are telling them no. You know, when they stop returning your emails, they stop returning your phone calls, they're not going to take meetings with you. They're saying no, at least for now. But because of the nature of who we are, we tend to be optimistic. I don't think we could do our jobs on a daily basis if we didn't, in, in some part of our brain, think everything is going to work out. But that optimism blinds us to when people are saying no. And I find that salespeople keep chasing deals that are really dead. So I love the idea of losing fast. Um, you know what, Jeff, before we go past that, there's, there's, a, there's an issue um, and it, it's the empty pep pipeline syndrome, right? That if you're a rep, um, is it better to have a pipeline of deals that eventually you're gonna lose, but nobody knows it, or to have an empty pipeline? Well. I would argue that if you're not just looking at pipeline load, you're looking at the other metrics that matter, which is cycle lengths, deal sizes, win rates, and, and the number of deals like the pipeline. You look at those four in conjunction, you're gonna get a much, much better picture of rep effectiveness versus just look at pipeline load, which so many leaders do. They're like, hey, you've got an empty pipeline, Jeff, what the heck's going on? If you were to say, well, listen, the deals I was working on, we have no business being in. And I would rather focus my attention on prospecting and business development into deals that I know we can win. Managers have a hard time with that. There, there's a whole new perspective that needs to be taken about working deals you can win at looking at the whole picture versus just that one little sliver. A million percent, as we both know, I, I would much rather have a rep who has an empty pipeline. And that's, of course, not something either of us want, but rather than a pipeline full of bull. Yeah, exactly. Uh, with, exactly. With the, defending, oh, this one's going to come through and this one's going to do this. They're fooling themselves. And the, the thing that we, of course, know about an empty pipeline is when you've got an empty pipeline, you've got to fill it and you get into that 
I hopefully, hopefully not desperation mode, but it should drive you to do whatever you have to do. Pick up the phone, send emails, use social media, whatever prospecting techniques you're going to use to get that thing filled with real possibilities as quickly as you possibly can. Um, exactly. One of the things I often say is after my three children and my dog, the thing that's most important to me in my life is my integrity. How, how does transparency equate to integrity? Is that the same thing? Is that different? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's words like integrity, authenticity, honesty, like those are all kind of pile in together, right? Now, integrity is, I, I think, is the closest one to transparency. And let me, I'll take a step back. There's a difference between being authentic and being transparent. Authentic is being genuine, being you, being, hey, this is how I feel. Like, let's talk religion. Let's talk politics. Let's, you know, like authenticity can sometimes get you in trouble. Um, I believe transparency is, a, <laughs> transparency is about thinking about when you're talking to a customer. Let, let's say you're having an internal meeting and you're talking about flaws in your product. We should be thinking when we're talking to a customer that the customer is seated or they, that they're seated right next to us when we're talking about those things, that any flaws or problems with the solution or reasons why that customer might not be a good fit, it's our responsibility to help them make the right decision for them, make it fast and make it confident. And so integrity goes hand in hand with transparency. When we lead with, like, you know, like as a speaker and workshop leader, I just, I had a customer come to me and say, Todd, listen, our, our sales organization loves you. They want you to come in and here's what we need. And he lays out, he's just like, we need a full methodology of like, we're going to go soup to nuts. Um, we want something that implements into Salesforce. There's all of this stuff. And he was just like, so tell us about how you could do that, Todd. And I was like, here's how I do it. I've got a buddy of mine who does like his sales methodology works really, really well. Transparency is a piece of that. I'm going to put you in touch with him. And like instantly this guy's like, wait, you don't, you don't do that? Like, well, no, but my buddy does and he's awesome. And I would love, and they're like, the guy's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, so what do you do again? But it basically, it's just that honesty builds the relationship, builds the trust. And that's what integrity is, is based on. And, you know, I, that deal I'm not going to get because I'm not what they need. And instead of me trying to push the boulder up the hill with him, I'm helping get him to his goal as quickly as possible. And guess what? He's already referred me to somebody else. So, it, I mean, that's, that's where it all starts. Integrity pays off. It's karma. It's all the goodness. But it also does right by the customer, which will not only help you in the short term, but help you with that customer staying buying more and telling all their friends. It's so funny you just said that because I was thinking this morning, you know, I always think uh, be before I do these things, at least a little bit. And I was thinking, you know, transparency is not a methodology. It, you know, mm -hmm. we, we both work for this with the same organization. We taught a four step process. I now teach a six step process, which really includes the, the, the other four anyways. I, I, I really believe all sales trainers are teaching the exact same thing. We're just using different words for the most part if we're mm -hmm. good at what we do. But but transparency is not really a methodology, is it? No, the way that I look at it is, so in my last role as a CRO, um, I had, at one point I had 61 people in, on my team working for me. And I used to get hit by all of these sales trainers, just like tons of them. And one of the things that always bothered me was um, I, I knew 
I, I felt like I could do a lot of the training because to your point, and like we could talk sales history for a little bit if you want to, that a lot of the concepts that you see were actually born in the 1910s and they're just different words around them now. But what I wanted for my team was stuff that teach it in the morning, use it in the afternoon, get the results the next day. And so that's the way that I think about what I do is methodology is two days of training. It's implementation. We got to make sure that everybody at the executive levels are involved and it's going to cost you a hundred grand plus and like all of that stuff. And what I view transparency is there's a concept, there's the behavioral science, and then there's tactics around the way you position, the way you prospect, the way you present and the way you negotiate you throw those four together, you can be using it in the afternoon and getting results the next day. So it is not a methodology. It's more of a philosophy with tactics. Yep. Uh, it, I was really pleased, not, not just because the book is so great, but when I was reading it, I said, wait a minute, I think I'm actually being transparent when I sell because when somebody calls me in, they, they, they don't call me in for my good looks, that's for certain. They call me in for one reason, that they want sales to increase. And I always say this, look, I, I'm as good as just about any trainer. There are certainly some I respect way more than me, but, but I, I'm really good at what I do and I can absolutely help you increase sales. But if you just hire me for a day or two days or five days of sales training, the only thing you're doing is paying my mortgage because you may get a little blip because I'm good at what I do and I'm entertaining. I've got a background in theater and stand-up comedy. I'm going to engage your people from the moment they walk in and I'm going to keep them engaged while they learn. But you may at the most get a tiny little blip, but that's not what you want. You want sales to increase and sales just don't increase from sales training alone. They'll increase from sales training and ongoing reinforcement and coaching, which now I tell that to every single prospect and I build it into every proposal. Uh, well, I'm certainly willing to take somebody's money if I've been that transparent and honest with them and they still say, no, we just want the training. I'll repeat. Yeah, but it's, I want you to know it's not going to work. As good as I am at this and as much fun as your people are going to have and all the stuff they're going to learn, it's not going to do what you want. Now that I've told you that, if you still want me to come in and do a day, a day of prospecting training or selling skills training, hand over the cash, let's do it, my friend. So I was really excited to go, I'm being transparent. Well, that's the thing. So there's a couple of things there. Number one, don't sell yourself short. You're dreamy. Let's, let's all agree on that. Um, but number two, you know, the, the people that have been around in the industry for a while that are still doing well, I keep finding that when I talk about this stuff, they come to that conclusion. It's the people that have based their sales career and their sales approach on being human, being transparent, building integrity from the get-go, not trying to be the swarmy salesperson, but the person who's actually trying to help them make the right decision and the right investment that are still around doing it today and doing it really well. So that's that's fantastic. And then point number three is um, I go through these, these spells where like I get onto something and then I can't stop. Uh, like transparency was obviously one that I continue to spend my life on. Uh, number two was sales history. Like I spent two months not doing any prospecting. I was just reading old books. Like I'm paying for that now. So don't... Um, We're going to get to that in a second, by the way. Right. But number three is that the area that I'm focused on right now that I'm spending all of my research time is on how humans learn. I've always felt that how can we be good teachers if we don't truly understand how the human brain absorbs content as efficiently as possible and puts it into play long term? 
And so I've been studying the crap out of that. I'm reading this book right now that is all fresh research on it. But what you're talking about is absolutely the formula for learning, right? You, you've got to be able to get their attention. So the part about being entertaining is important because they've got to want to learn from you. But then number two, they've actually got to be paying attention. So you've got to deliver the content in a way that engages them and holds them. But number three and four are, are interesting. Number three is we all learn from immediate error correction, right? So what that means is we've got to take it and try it. And if we make an error, we've got to adjust right then. That And like, I could go on a rant about the school systems where we teach somebody, we give them a test, they find out three days later what their grade is, and they never look at what they got wrong again. Like, that's not how you learn. You learn from, if you've got a bucket and you've got some crumpled up paper and it's you got a fan on, how high and how far do I have to throw it to adjust for the wind? And I just keep making adjustments until I can hit five in a row. That's how we learn. And the last piece is um, what is called consolidation, which is we need time to marinate on it and like reinforce it and continue to hear the same things over again. Sleep is incredibly the most important part to long-term learning that if you are not, um, you know, you don't get a good night's sleep, your ability to efficiently take on new ideas and be able to actually implement them in the field goes down dramatically. So it's, you know, it's intention, attention, engagement, error correction, and consolidation. Those are the four together. And if, you know, you and I and everybody in this field that's hoping to really make an impact really take heart of those, and I'm digging into the details of each one right now, we're all going to be much more effective in what we do. Yeah, I, I don't say this to be altruistic. I mean, I love making money at what I do, but I really truly, truly love helping people. And I can think of more than one example where I've said, look, you're, you're not going to get what you want. I've delivered the training and they didn't take the reinforcement of the coaching. And I'll call up, you know, a month or two months later. I can remember a particular example. I'm not going to name the company, but a very a huge multinational payroll company and warn them that without the reinforcement, the prospecting training I was going to teach them would not work. Spent a day with their team, training them how to prospect, got them on the phones the next morning for three hours. Managers are coming up to me. I'm the greatest thing in the world. We've never gotten this many appointments in a month, let alone in three hours. When, when I called them up two months later, you know, let's go on to the next step. He goes, nah, the training didn't work. What do you mean the training didn't work? <laughs> uh, it's not working. Well, it worked the next day, didn't it? So yeah, you're, you're 100% on the money. I want to get into a, a little bit about uh, the history because uh, I was really excited when I saw what you posted yesterday, uh, and I'd like you to talk about it, but uh, one of the things that really uh, struck me was that the purpose was to elevate the profession of sales, which if anybody is in the sales pro network, they'll know in the about section, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what I wrote, because that is why I formed this. So can you talk a little bit about the history of sales, and especially that post from yesterday? Yeah, it's, um, so I was given a book from 1940. 47. It's called The Five Great Rules of Selling. It's behind me here. And it's all tabbed up. I've read it three times. I, I think it's fascinating. But I ended up looking at the references. So this guy, Percy H. Whiting wrote it. And um, he kept oh, referring. Percy. Oh, you remember Percy. He was a big Dale, Dale Carnegie guy. Um, but like he'd written a couple of books, but he, um, he kept referring to other books. And so I kept going back 30s, 20s. I'm reading a book from 19... I think it's 1907 right now, called um, Scientific Sales Management. But so I've been trying to get into the true sales history to really understand what sales was like back then. A couple of things. Number one, 
a lot of what we see today and hear today and talk about today, they were thinking the same things back then. Like I felt, you know, obviously the review correlation between how we as human beings use reviews to help make a predictive purchase of confidence and how that applies to B2B is a new concept because reviews weren't around back then. But they were talking about transparency and the integrity of selling. All the way back, I found a quote from a guy named Baltasar Gracian. You remember him? Uh, he was a Spanish philosopher in the 1600s. He was quoted as talking about how exaggeration is like terrible. It makes your goods and you look like a horrible person. And like, we need to stop exaggerating when we're trying to sell people. I'm like, that's 1647. So there's so much incredible stuff out there. Like I could, we could do a whole interview on it. What I, what I posted about yesterday was about this idea that um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were a few companies that had their own salespeople, like Ford Motor Company and NCR and Burroughs adding machines and these lumber companies. But it, there was a lot of what were called drummers and drummers were essentially manufacturers reps. So they would go rep tons of different products and then go and they like they were back slapping, hard drinking type uh, guys that uh, were just there to make a buck. And that started to change in the early 1910s. And as the industrial revolution in America was really starting to get its foothold on its power around the world, the, the sales profession was seen as a key way to make America take advantage of this great advantage that it had. And so the post yesterday was about the fact that actually 104 years ago today uh, was really day one of the World Sales Congress that took place in Detroit in 1916. So it was January or uh, July 10th, 1916. And it was the first known sales conference. It was attended by 3,000 sales professionals across all industries. And the keynote speaker was then President Woodrow Wilson. And, uh, you know, they, like the whole community came together for this. Church sermons were, you know, helping the individuals that were in town for it. It's an amazing piece of history around the sales professional, but it was really about hey, the days of the old back-slapping, hard-drinking drummers are over. Now it's about integrity, honesty, and elevating the profession of sales to be able to take advantage of what we have in front of us right now. And it, it's, it's, so July 10th was actually Woodrow Wilson doing the opening keynote. July 9th was when the, kind of the event kicked off. Um, but it was a week-long event. Lots of really cool stuff took place. There were breakouts by industries. I, I spent so much time digging into it and I could go on for another half an hour about it. But like today is an important day in the history of sales. Uh, I have to say that, you know, as much as I love you, I sometimes curse you because whenever I see a post by you, I've got to read it because I'm fascinated. That one particular, I'm like, oh my God, Woodrow Wilson's 100 years. Uh, it's, it's amazing. By the way, what was Baltazar selling with swords? No, he was a philosopher. And apparently he was probably, he had just gotten sold something he didn't need, would be my guess. <laughs> so and then he was out there like whack. He had it's this whole um, this whole diatribe about, um, you know, the, how terrible exaggeration is and how it makes you look as bad as your products and it hurts you long term. It was like this is 1647. I was blown away by it. But I literally I don't know where I put it, but I literally printed off his rant and I had it posted on my wall for a little while because I was so like enamored by it. 
Fascinating stuff, truly. Um, so I want to move to another topic. Um, the, the thing that I find in almost every organization that I walk into is the number one challenge is that salespeople simply are not meeting with enough prospects. Um, what's your advice around that? What's the best way to prospect these days? Not just in the COVID-19 crisis, although if you'd uh, talk a little bit about that, that would be great. And how do you be transparent in your prospecting? Because we both know that, you know, uh, there are a lot of corny ways to prospect, a lot of really, really poor ways to prospect, and that uh, it is difficult to get yourself in front of decision makers. So please take it away, Todd. Well, yeah, I'd say, first of all, call Jeff Goldberg, because um, like he will, like, they, I mean, seriously, when somebody comes to me and says, Todd, like, what's the best way to prospect? That's not me. But what I do talk about a lot is just thinking about the behavioral science coupled with the fact that, you know, the last 10 years before I did this, I was in senior sales roles from C-level to SVP level. And so I've been on the receiving end of these things for the last 10 years. And so the advice that I would give everybody is empathy. As a CRO in my last role, I was getting between 100 and 150 emails per day. I was in 30 to 35 meetings per week, right? So. 30 to 35 meetings, it's like junior high, right? Like I'm in a meeting and then the bell rings and I got to go to the next meeting, right? Like that was my life. But email was something that I had to check. Uh, I always joked that it was like playing the instant lottery, that I had to check it because there might be a winner in there, but odds are it's filled with losers. And, and by winner, what do I mean? Well, my top three priorities as an executive were my team, my customers, and my prospects. So I'm looking at my inbox between meetings. I'm just like, uh, you know, just trying to see if there's any winners in there. So what does that mean to you? Well, first of all, if you, I literally listed this out once of what my priorities were, like my team, my customers, my prospects, a message from my boss, my peers, um, investors, board, partners, like there's this whole list. Guess what number 14 is? Number 14 is un unknown potential vendors, right? So a cold outreach is number 14 on my priority list of 150 emails. So a couple of things to think about. Number one is it's not just the subject line that gets read anymore. Every inbox that I have has a preview of 10 words. Are you optimizing those? I would argue that most of you are not. That most of those emails that came from unknown potential vendors started Within the first 10 words, the three that would always jump out were, I wanted to. Todd, I wanted to introduce you to our company. Todd, I wanted to see if you had 10 minutes available. Todd, I wanted to see if you got the 14 other emails I got. Todd, I wanted to bump this to the top of your inbox. I'm just like, listen, I love you. Like, I, I'm sure you're selling something fantastic or you wouldn't be in business. But I literally am running from thing to thing. Select all delete of the I wanted to's. Um, I literally then actually for a while, I just went select all pull into a folder and there's a whole page in the book of those emails. Like you could see them. They're hilarious. So what do you do to stand out? Well, if it's digital prospecting, if you're sending an email, you've got to opt optimize those first 10 words. And you've got to think about what I care about, which is my customers, my team, my prospects. So how can you craft something personalized and valuable that hits those, you're much more likely to stand out from the white noise of the I wanted to inbox. 
a couple of examples that I had gotten. Uh, at one point, I um, we posted roles for what were called sales development reps, you know, inside reps that are basically prospecting. Yeah. We posted the roles. A day later, a company sends me an email that says, Todd, here is a study of what SDRs are making in the Chicago market. And um, I, we were in Chicago. I was like, oh, that one stands out from the white noise. It's clearly meant for me because they knew that we just posted this and it's relevant and helpful. I opened it up and that was it. It was, we saw that you posted some SDR roles, thought this would be helpful. And I was like, wow, it is, that's amazing. A, a two weeks later, quarter ends, I get another email from them. Hey, Todd, here is a CRO board deck template that will potentially save you some time prepping for your board meeting. I'm like, oh gosh, that's exactly what I'm thinking about right now. Are these people peering in my windows? I open it up and that's what it is. Like Todd, you know, your quarter just ended, hope it was fantastic and hope this saves you some time. And I looked at it and I was like, all right, who are these guys? This is amazing. And I clicked on their, their link within it. They knew it because they're tracking it on the back end. And then when they called, they were able to engage with me and I, I heard them out. I don't think we ever bought, but for me, give, give, give. Like you would never go to a bank and make a withdrawal if you hadn't made a deposit first, right? I totally stole that quote. But the point is, I, I believe in personalized valuable, give, give, give. And then when you go to ask, you're much more likely to stand out from the I wanted to's that are at number 14. And the minute you say I wanted to means it's still about number 14, still about you. Hmm. So there's an opportunity to stand out and elevate your messaging by optimizing those first few words. So it sounds like you're not a big fan of the mass email that goes out to everybody. And, and another, one, another one that uh, bugs the crap out of me. And I'm sure that you get them like I do. I get about 10 a day people reaching out to me on LinkedIn. Hey, I'd love to connect. It looks, I've read your profile. Looks like it's fascinating. We've got a lot to talk about. And personally, I'll accept any invite because when I post content on LinkedIn, I want the broadest audience possible. But what drives me insane is, as soon as I accept, I get an auto response saying, hey, I'd love to talk to you about our great fill in the blank. And, and it's like, I, I always equate it to walking into a bar. Uh, I'm a single guy, I know you're not, but you know, I'm walking up to a woman and go, hey, want to come back to my place without any drinks, any conversation, uh, no dating. You know, and and I, I assume that if it's four in the morning and it's last call and you know, she's had enough drinks, maybe one in a million is going to come on back. But there's got to be a little wooing first. Don't, don't you agree? <laughs> that's that's a great analogy and it's funny there's um i stole this line too but um there is a, a phrase for that called the pitch slap which i think is hilarious uh which is you accept a linkedin connection and slapped with a pitch um and that yeah that obviously it's the same exact thing i think in all digital prospecting if there's an opportunity to be personal like just think personalized and valuable and then just empathize with if, again every level in an organization that you move up, you get more emails. So a rep doesn't get many. So if you're selling at the, the kind of the individual contributor level, whether you're selling the sales or you're selling to any profession, you're likely to stand out more. But as it moves up, if you're prospecting into an executive level, a C-level, a director level, you've got to stand out. And the I wanted to's have got to go away because it's not about you. It's got to be about making their life better and building a relationship. Now, there, there's a couple of other things. Um, First of all, because like, I'm guessing this question might be coming, is what about cold calling? Like, what about the phone? And so um, I'll tell you two things. Number one, as an executive, this does not mean don't make calls. Like, I'm going to jump to the conclusion first. 
as an executive, I never answered a cold call, like ever, because I just, there was too much and I could not drive my day via interruptions. It just couldn't happen. My day had to be like, I, I had to be as efficient as possible to just get through. And that included like a break to go take a couple of Advil every day. Cause like, it was stressful. Like I'm, I'm so happy doing what I'm doing now. I'm so much healthier, but back then, like, it's just like fire, fire, fire. Like I got to get through this day. So I couldn't answer cold calls, but guess what? I get a hundred to 150 emails a day. You know how many voicemails I get a day? Two, three, nobody was leaving voicemails. Most of the time I'm sitting there looking at my phone. I can see the caller ID as it's popping up, but I'm working on something, right? I can see you're calling me right there and I'm not answering. And then you don't leave a message. Then you just wasted your time making the call. And when you would leave a voicemail, it would convert to text and send me the message as an email. Guess how many of those I read? All of them. There's only two to three, right? And they're like, so make those personalized valuable, but leave a message. It is an opportunity to build trust. Do it. Like I, that always drove me crazy because there were individuals that would leave me voicemails that were personalized. They were valuable. And I never answered the phone, but I did eventually engage with them because that was a form of building a relationship with me. And you can actually stand out by leaving good, personalized, valuable voicemails. Yeah, to this, to this day, I still ask audiences, uh, whether it's via Zoom or face-to-face, -face, which I'm sure someday we'll get back to, you know, how many of you leave voicemails? And there's always at least a few that don't. Uh, usually it's most of the room, and I'll always ask why, even though I know the answer, but I wanna hear them say it, and the answer is always, I don't leave voicemails because nobody calls back. Well, if you're not leaving a voicemail, people can't call back, and uh, to your point, you know, if only a few people are leaving a voicemail, that's a great way to stand out. Just like using direct mail these days, or one of my favorite things, send a handwritten thank you note. Yes. Nobody does that anymore. I, I, I did a networking call with a guy who I was introduced to recently. Turned out uh, he was trying to sell me a service for a client of mine. Actually, it wasn't a networking call. I'd been referred to him because one of my clients needed a service, and the guy who introduced me thought this guy's service could help me. It turned out it couldn't. But um, he was very interesting. Oh, in fact, I introduced him to you, the guy with the uh, the plant. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Sent me metal. Like, where is his? He sent me this freaking like cement plaque. It's awesome. This. Exactly. <laughs> I can't throw it out, right? It's You're right. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. It's so but great. Thing. He sent me a handwritten thank you note a yeah. few days later, and I was like, "What a good guy." Nobody does this anymore, except maybe me and Todd, maybe Steve Bookbinder, but yeah. uh, nobody does this stand out from the crowd, leave a voicemail. And I'm with you. It, you know, the days of the mass emails and the mass voicemails, you know, the same thing every time, you really have to give it a little effort. And uh, what, what, did you call it the email lottery? Oh, it's like playing the instant lottery. Like you, there, there could be a winner in there, but odds are it's just a loser. Yeah. When I talk about uh, you have to be focused and disciplined if you're going to be successful in sales, uh, I often say, you know, Sometimes you just need to not read email at all because I know every time the email dings, makes a noise, you know, I'm going to look up at it. And you know why? Because it could be Bill Gates saying, hey, Jeff, I'm no longer the CEO of Microsoft, but I'd like to send you a boatload of money to come train the entire team worldwide. <laughs> exactly. Don't laugh. It could, one of these days that's going to happen. Somebody's going to know Bill Gates and say, just let <laughs> goof, call Jeff Goldberg because he's been using this for years. But yeah, uh, you got to leave a message. You got to you got to differentiate yourself. Mm -hmm. So um can you talk a little bit about uh, transparent negotiations? I found that fascinating in the book too. And again, uh, the book is called uh, uh, The Transparency Sale. If you haven't read it yet, 
uh, you should. Uh, I'll, I'll give you uh, Todd's contact information. It's on Amazon, I'm sure. Didn't it just come out in paperback, Todd? Yes, it sure did. So yeah, the new paperback, but the, the one you've got has got a transparent cover. So, um, you know, I, I used to joke, one of my jokes was, uh, even if the book sucks, it looks fantastic on your bookshelf. Like the, the design, I wish I designed it. My publisher did an incredible job. And by the way, it just won, I don't know if you saw this post. Um, I When I wrote the book, I literally thought there was a 50-50 chance it would suck. Like, cause I'd never written a book and I had no idea what I was doing. It just picked up its third best book award last night um, at like this tech, uh, I, I don't remember the, the award thing, but they're apparently sending me a, you know, like a gold medal too, which is so cool, but sales and marketing book of 2020 uh, award winner. So it keeps, keeps doing well, which is so cool. But the negotiation thing is the one that really jumps out. Um, that like, I, I spend a lot of my time teaching that because it is literally one of those things you can teach use in the afternoon and see results in your next deal. Here's the thing. I always felt as a sales rep and then as a sales leader that it took a different personality to negotiate than it did to sell, right? That we, you know, if integrity and authenticity and honesty and transparency are core to you being able to build a relationship to get a customer or buyer or prospect to want to do business with you. Why is it that when they say yes, like Jeff, hey, we're going to go with you, off we go, that we subconsciously go, all right, cool, the days of niceties are over, you've said yes, now I'm going to lie to you. Um, like if you go to Google and just write, like, what are the top five negotiation tactics that I can use to be more effective? They're all horrible trust eroders, like aim high, start with an extreme position, or to give the customer control or um, to, to get control over the negotiation, give the customer the illusion that they have control. I'm like, what are you, you crazy? Like this is horrible, like right at the goal line, smack the trust away. So what transparent negotiation is, is it builds trust right to the goal line through literally playing your cards face up, which sounds crazy and you feel like, oh, I'm gonna be giving something out. No. What actually ends up happening is you end up with much more valuable deals that build trust to the goal line and create more predictable deals. And here's how it works. I'll just lay it out for you. Please do. Um, so I was I was at a, a company in Houston negotiating a four and a half million dollar deal back in 2008, 2009. And I walked into the uh, office in their offices in Houston and they didn't have one procurement person there. There was six. And I looked at my rep, I was like, we probably should have known this, like good pre-call plan. Uh, but anyway, uh, I knew where that was going. They were just going to try to beat me up. As a matter of fact, one of the people in there was just like, oh, I can't wait to get into this guy. And so I, this kind of happened by accident, but the magic that came after it, and then I've been teaching this for the last 12 years. I just said, hey, listen, I have the feeling I know where this is going. So can I just share with you what's important to us as an organization? And we can use that as a basis for our conversation. And they were like, yeah, like, we don't know you yet, but whatever, go ahead. So I wrote on the whiteboard four things. The first was volume. So the more products, services, technology, whatever you buy, the better it is for us, the more we'll pay you in the form of a discount. So commit to more, that's good for us. So we'll pay you for that. Number two, timing of cash. The faster you pay, it turns out we like money. That helps us. So we'll reciprocate and pay you in the form of a discount for accelerating how fast you pay us. Number three, length of commitment. 
longer you commit, the better it is for us to resource, to predict our business, to even get investment. And if you're able to commit longer to us, we'll pay you in the form of a discount. And number four is the timing of the deal. I, you know, Chris here, my rep has got a quota based on the quarter, right? So that helps him. But me as an executive, I have to forecast our business and having an accurate forecast is immensely valuable to us and to me personally. And so if we're able to align around when you think you can get this done, I'll pay you in the form of a discount to hit it. And so we had all four up there. They immediately went into, Todd, we need 30% off. And so what do you, would you normally do? Well, normally you'd go, I can do 15 and you go into auction mode and you end up coming, like all of a sudden you're at 22% or you go into, maybe you didn't hear the value. Like procurement people couldn't give a crap about the value. Like there's all those, those things that don't matter. What does matter is if we end up at 20% off and I didn't do that, we've basically become a charitable, like we've given charity to their bottom line and got nothing. In this case, with this organization, we ended up giving them a 15% discount in the end. But in return, they paid the whole three years up front. So that four and a half million dollar deal became like 4.2. And we got wired a check like 45 days, days later for 4.2 million. Like that was quite a party. And then number two is I predict, you know, I, I forecasted the deal for the end of September. And guess what happened? They signed at the end of September. And so I got tremendous value for the 15% that we gave away. We got out of the business of charity and it became every dollar I gave to you in the form of a discount, you gave me something valuable back. Now, what happens on the back end and what happened in that conversation is they now transparently understand exactly your, your pricing. You've got, a, a, you've established really strong pricing credibility that like, you know, your pricing and it's based on something that matters. But number three, they ended up negotiating their own deal. Like they come to, came to me at the end and they're like, all right, we can't buy more. Like the other divisions aren't ready. We can't extend the term beyond three years. But what we can do is accelerate cash payment. And we think we can get this thing done. Um, so we'll do 15%. Like, all right, cool. And like, that's the way it works. Everybody listening to this can absolutely do this. Like it's, think about, and literally you can flip it too. I bought a car uh, two Aprils ago and I went in with my own levers, right? Like you can just think about what your levers are, but you lay them on the table face up, transparency begets transparency. This car salesman ended up sharing his whole life with me, like his, um, you know, attention deficit uh, disorder, uh, problems with his father, like why he didn't want to be working there much longer. Like all of a sudden I got this whole life story for him because I walked in transparently. So it, it works magic. I encourage everybody to give it a try. That is great. Um, one of the things I'm very big on when I'm working with people is I, I believe in phrasing and, and that one word can make the difference between a sale and no sale. And I love the way you express it. We'll pay you in the form of a discount. I mean, that's exactly what I want to hear. Psychologically, they're going to pay me. I thought I was paying that. It's brilliant, Todd. And the, the other thing that I, I love about this is, um, you know, sales is often, and certainly negotiation is often equated to war. And in war, typically there are winners and losers. Uh, I actually don't believe that. I think there's either both winners or both losers. But in sales, either you get paid and they get your product or service, or you don't get paid and they don't get your product or service. So you really should be on the same side of the table. Well, that's the thing, you know, um, there's an incredible book and I highly recommend it. It's by Chris Voss. It's called Never Split the Difference. 
Um, it's a, I mean, because he's a former hostage negotiator. His stories are amazing. The psychology of it is amazing. But when I then go, all right, should you be implementing this stuff as a formula for the way you negotiate a sales training deal, a banking deal, an insurance deal, like whatever you're selling? I'm like, well, no, we're not negotiating the release of hostages from a bank heist, right? Um, that we are, what we sell, it should be easy. Just establish your levers, understand the value of each one of those things and play them proactively and build trust to the goal line. I mean, the point of never split the difference is that the concept is basically based on if you go in and you're trying to negotiate the release of 10 hostages from a bank heist, you wouldn't ever go in and go, just give me five of them. You can go ahead and kill the other five, right? Like that doesn't make sense. Like the point of never split the difference is I need all 10. And I think in what we do, I think there's an opportunity to trade, right? And there's an opportunity to be able to share. This is what we care about. I understand what you care about. You want your discount. Let's work together and we can negotiate this thing as a team instead of me basically lying to you and eroding trust right at the goal line. Yeah. Your book is chock full of great advice and valuable information and great stories. And I don't know if I'm combining two, but there's another one. I, I, I don't know if it's the same deal or not, but there was somebody you needed a signature by a certain date. And the I think the CEO or whoever was signing off was on vacation. Can, can you share that one? Yeah. So that last lever. So, you know, you, you share the levers and it's not like just magically like mm, like things happen. Right. And one of them was um, these guys, they actually when we were uh, aligning around when the deal was going to get done, they said it, it, I was in Houston in July. Remember it very clearly because. Houston in July. Um, and they would said, they said, hey, Todd, we want to get this done by the end of August. So let's use that as the date. And even at the time, I was just like, I looking around, I was like, there's no freaking way you're getting this done by the end of August. But I told them, hey, listen, I appreciate that where I need it by the end of September. Um, so I'm going let, to let's, let's agree on August, but I'm going to pay you in the form of a discount to get this done by the end of September. And they're like, oh, awesome. If we're still working on this in the end of September, oh, this is going to be insane. Well, sure enough, we get to the middle of September. It's actually, it was like September 22nd. The, the guy calls my rep and is just like, oh, hey, the, the person that needs to sign this is on vacation. They'll be back the Monday after the end of the month. I think it was October 2nd. Hey, Chris, can you hold the price um, to October 2nd? And I, I, I'll walk into his office and I will stand over him and make sure he signs it then. Like, what do you do? Well, there is some brain science around how we are, like part of the reason we read negative reviews is because our brain wants predictability. It wants certainty. And when we have uncertainty all around us here in 2020, it, it's a crazy maker for the brain. And so the, the trick here, and use it for good, not evil, is the answer I told Chris to tell them back is to just say, I don't know. And the buyer is just like, well, gosh, we, we need to know. Like, this is important. If, if that 5% goes away, there's other things that we need to do to make this deal happen. And so the, the language to Chris that he delivered perfectly was, hey, listen, what I do know, the certain thing, is that if we get it done here by the end of September, that 5% is still there. We're paying you in the form of a discount for September. We're not gonna know about October until October. So let's do everything we can to still get this thing signed. And if October comes and it's not signed, then we'll sit down and we'll figure out whether or not we can still do it. But 
you know, talk about October and October because after the quarter ends, like how important was that? Is there still incentive to get it done quickly? Like we won't know that until September 30th at midnight. So I don't know. But what I do know is if you sign it, you'll be good. And the, the guy was just like, I don't know what to do with this. Sure enough, September 26th, somehow he found the way to get the, I don't know if he was in a the space shuttle or what, but they, they found him to figure out a way to get him to sign it, right? And the, the point is this, the minute you say, yeah, go ahead, as long as it's a Monday morning, we're fine, then your deal just slipped. The minute you say no, like, no, we had an agreement. We said September. Then trust is eroded and they likely for 5% on a four and a half or $4.2 million deal at that point, if we take that 5% away, they would have to go get approvals, like reapprovals. And my beginning of October deal just became end of October, end of November, maybe never. So my advice is make that agreement the certain thing, make everything else uncertain, make that decision when the time comes. If October would have come around and um, they hadn't signed, we'd sit down that morning and go, do we want to take this or not? Most cases we probably would, but if it's a customer that's been screwing with us for a long time, maybe we don't. Yeah. But at its core, uh, when you deliver it that way, the magic that happens around people that figure out a way to get it done because you're being trustworthy and being transparent and you're creating uncertainty around their choice drives the the buyers mad and you, you'll get deals done in a much more accelerated, predictable fashion. And it's fantastic. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm looking over occasionally because I'm watching the feed uh, to see if anybody has questions. And mostly it's all people saying how much they love you and what, what you're saying. But I just <laughs> noticed that there's somebody who's uh, watching who we both highly respect and whose feet we learned at. Hello to Stacia Skinner. Thank you for joining Stacia! I like yes. Princess Stacia, as I like to I call I don't know what I did, but uh, we used to live close to each other here, and then she escaped. But I'm proud of her for escaping Illinois. So, <laughs> One of the best, truly. I, I remember, you know, following her around, uh, carrying her bags, and just learning from her. She's absolutely fantastic. I yep. have another question, and this is on my mind. Is there a danger of being too transparent? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, so it's funny, um, and I'm going to impart the wisdom of a supermodel here. So everybody, buckle up. Um, but Tyra Banks. So Tyra Banks, she coined the term "flossum." It's not in the book. Like I discovered this after, and I was like, "Ah, oh, that's a perfect word." But "flossum" is to embrace your flaws, but know that you're still awesome. When we talk transparency, I'm not advising anybody to go in their next sales engagement. And go, hey, everybody, this is why we suck, right? When we talked about that four, two to four, five, like that's an important window. If what you're selling, it, here's a, a line from a 1921 Tractor World Magazine article. So 1921 Tractor World Magazine had the 10 traits of a great sales professional. They still, all of them hold true today, by the way. But one of them was that if your product or service that you're selling won't stand the truth, stop selling it. And what that means is if your product truly sucks, you shouldn't be selling it anyway. But the point is hit that 4.2 to 4.5. Like what are the things that that customer may not love? And if those are gonna be important, lead with it, engage in that conversation. If they are gonna be important, you can move on, they can move on and you can be working on customers that are actually better fits. But the point is like we're not telling you to go out and say, hey, we suck. We've got this problem. And oh, gosh, this person over here is a jerk. And like, it, no, it is absolutely possible to be too transparent. 
and, and here's how you do it. Act like a customer. A customer is going to do their own homework because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback on everything we do buy and experience now. You can no longer hide your flaws and expect to get away with it anyway. So go do the homework that a buyer would do, curate that together and create your messaging around what they're going to find, right? So if there's been a problem in the past with a solution or a customer that, or, or you know, like a common theme, work that into your messaging. Like I always joke about uh, Ikea, right? Like Ikea, every the, the world's largest furniture manufacturer for 10 years in a row and everybody hates it. But they embrace the fact, they go out to the world and say, hey, listen, your experience isn't going to be great. It's going to be a packed labyrinth of hallways. There's not going to be a salesperson to help you. You're going to have to go to the warehouse and pick the, the two-ton boxes off of the shelves yourself onto a cart that doesn't have brakes. Go out to the parking lot, jam it into your car Tetris style, drive home with an injury or two, and then open the box at home thinking you just had left all the fun at the store and there's 150 parts that have no words on the work instructions, F-bomb your way through the assembly. And at the end, get an endorphin rush and go, gosh, you know what? We should have bought the end tables with this bedroom set. Let's go back, right? It's because IKEA knows, hey, we're giving up these things to be great at our core. And our core is giving you modern Scandinavian design furniture you didn't pay much for. Each one of us in our organizations, whatever we sell, has an opportunity to think about what are we not and what are and like and at what cost, right? Like I don't teach prospecting courses, right? I give that up because there are people like Jeff and Stacia and amazing people out there that do this so much better than me that I'm this is my core. This is what every morning and every night before I go to bed, I study because I want to be the best in the world at this. I think everybody that's listening to this has an opportunity to really go, hey, our products, we don't do these things so that we can do these great. Figure that out, message it, be flossome, hit that four, two to four, five, and you're gonna watch your cycle lengths speed up and your win rates go up dramatically, literally overnight. Brilliant. Uh, I wanna be respectful of everybody's time. We're running out right now and I wanna give you a chance to show your contact information, but we're gonna run over just a couple of minutes because I wanna give you one last chance uh, to answer a question for me. Um, by the way, I love Ikea and I, I get the greatest thrill out of putting their furniture together. I'm so happy when I'm done. It's, <laughs> I actually love it. Um, but my question, my final question for today, and I could actually listen to you all day, just like I could listen to Stacia all day. Why is transparency more important right now more than ever? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because right now, if you like for a lot of us, when we go to sell something, there's a consensus purchase, right? that in many, the larger the dollar amount that we're selling, the more people that have to be involved, right? Consensus selling, Google it on, uh, you know, Google, like how many average buyers are there in a consensus sale? And there's like 23 million results that come up, like everybody's talking about. It. But if you thought consensus uh, selling was hard, imagine consensus buying when your buyers are now all remote. Their process to be able to get a, a sale done, like to actually make a purchase of substance has become infinitely harder because they can't just grab people down the hallway or run into them in the kitchen, right? They're all at home. We have to make the buying journey frictionless. And there's a whole behavioral science thing. It's a term I coined called remote buyer bias, but it basically says that our brains are wired to take the easiest path to the best reward, not just go for the best reward. We want the combination of easy path 
to best reward. Otherwise, our brains will say that's not the best reward, right? And we'll actually dumb down that project to go work on something easy. Transparency is part of that. When we present as though we're perfect, that we're a perfect 5-0, what are we driving the buyer to do? Well, we're not driving them to think, oh, well, then their solution must be perfect. We're actually driving them to go do their own homework, to go check out your review scores, to look at Glassdoor, like uh, to talk to friends, to back channel you to peers, to check out analyst reports. You're driving them to do more homework, to be able to predict what their experience is going to be like with you, which is why, again, a 4.2 to 4.5 sells better than a 5. It's because when we drive buyers to take extra steps, we're literally giving the opportunity for other priorities to jam in the, the way between us and our deal. And so when we lead with transparency, we do the homework for the buyer. We say, listen, this is what you're not going to like. This is what you're going to love. Let's work on those things. And if there's a match, let's keep going. You just did the homework for the buyer. You help them predict what their process and their, their future is going to look like. And as a result, you end up getting more deals. And that becomes infinitely more important when buyers are all by themselves trying to get this stuff done and they don't have the pleasure of sitting in a conference room with everybody and banging out a deal with you. Fascinating stuff. I, I, I wish we had uh, five more hours. Uh, I'm gonna share my screen right now and I hope it's shared. Um, Todd, your information is up there. Would you like to just briefly tell people how they can reach you and why they would want to reach you and what you what you actually do these days for companies? Yeah, I, I often joke, if you can't find me, then you're not looking very hard. I'm uh, I, blessed that I'm everywhere. I think I've been a, a guest on 60 different podcasts now. So if you go to Spotify or iTunes and just throw my name in there and pick one, uh, there's I, I'm on all of them right now. But yeah, what I do is um, do workshops and speak and the concept, again, is I want to be able to provide you stuff in the morning you can use in the afternoon and get results that next day, right? And obviously, there's reinforcements and all sorts of things that go along with it. But I'd love to be able to help you out with that. Um, so you can find me on my website, transparencysale.com. I'm all over LinkedIn and Twitter. And then, of course, um, you can just reach out to me, phone and email, and I would love to be able to help you out. And, and then to your point, Jeff, uh, the book is available anywhere books are sold on everything. I did do the audio uh, book myself. Uh, I narrated it myself. So if you need the sultry sounds of Todd Capone to lull you asleep at night, I can. Uh, the audio book is also available. And who doesn't need that? Nice, nice <laughs> That's right. Todd, thank you so much for being generous with your time today. I, I'm positive that everybody got a lot out of it. I know I did, and I, I love listening to you, and I love reading your stuff. I'm hoping, uh, uh, is there a transparency sales management book in the future? Uh, yeah, yeah. I had the proposal done. I had three publishing offers, but then, you know, 2020 hit. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of adjustments. But yes, that will become a priority again. The working title is the transparent sales leader, but I've got I've done a ton of research around how you truly drive engagement. And uh, the kind of the bottom line is if you're using variable compensation to motivate your sales reps, you're doing it wrong. That variable compensation should be a reward for the work that you that your salespeople do that they're intrinsically motivated to do. When you combine the two, the results are amazing. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm hoping, and I think more importantly is hopefully there's a Jeff Goldberg, Todd Capone Facebook Live too. So we'll do that before the next book. 
I'm ready for that anytime. Thank you so much today for today, my friend. Uh, thank you to everybody for joining us in the Sales Pro Network. And please remember that sales is a game of making things happen. So get out there and make sales happen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Todd. Thank you.